0: And how fitting that psalm is as we consider the text before us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the 21st chapter of Matthew. I'm going to pick up where we had left off a number of months back. As we conclude this last parable and the verses beginning in verse 42 through 46. Now hear the word of God. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables... They perceived that he was speaking of them, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, because they took him for a prophet. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now upon this, your word and truth, and open up our hearts that we might be receptive to what Christ is speaking to us this day, both as a church and to us individually and particularly. Open our ears that we might hear, and our eyes that we might see the glory of Christ. And we pray that you would apply the the message that you would have for us to our lives, that in the way only you can do, make it specific to each one of us, that we would leave changed people more in the likeness of Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In Pisa, Italy, there's one of the world's most famous buildings, which would probably have gone mostly unnoticed to the world if it were not for its chief flaw. The cylindrical building, approximately 185 feet tall and 50 feet in diameter, with eight-foot walls, thick walls at its base, is a bell tower for the cathedral of Pisa, which was constructed of marble and weighs some estimated 16,000 tons. The world has known this tower less for what it is and more for what it has been noted for in its flaw, the leaning tower of Pisa. Pisa. The construction on this tower began in 1173 and it took 225 years to complete. But due to the instability of the foundation and the soil on which it stood, it began to sink and to this day it leans at about 5 degrees. And we've known this famous piece of architecture because of its flaw. Architecture has played a very important role throughout the Bible to communicate what God is doing here upon this earth with His people. In fact, in the very beginning at creation, in Genesis 1 and 2, God was building a temple. A temple, in a very general form, is is this God space where He created us in time, space, and with matter. He stands outside of that in eternity. But He's creating upon this earth a place, a God space, where heaven and earth come together, where God and man can meet. It's the intersection where heaven and earth come together. It's the garden, if you will. Where God would walk in the cool of the day and fellowship with his creature, man. It's the place where God can meet with his creation and enjoy it up close and personal. It's a place where the divine image bearing man can meet with God and worship him. That's the idea of the temple. And while God began this great construction project, the image bearer, man was to build upon it until the knowledge of the glory of God went throughout all of the earth as the waters do cover the sea. As we look at Revelation 21 and 22, we see this, where this creation project is going. But somewhere, which we know particularly where, between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, something went horribly wrong. And so God sent another Adam to make right all those things that went wrong. And this other Adam, which the scripture calls the last Adam, was his own son to get everything back on track. If we understood that the theme of the Bible is the building of this temple by God's kingdom on the earth through Jesus Christ, it'll help us to consider how all of the parts contribute to this overall narrative. But for years and years, humans have been getting God's purposes and design all wrong. Not only have they grossly misunderstood the nature of God's original intent and His glorious design for His temple and His kingdom project here, we have been creating temples and kingdoms that seek to destroy what God is doing And to compete directly against his glorious intent. From the Tower of Babel. To the other kingdoms. To other projects. The schemes of man. And his depravity. Go against what God has been doing. But he has overruled all of that in Christ. And even in today's church. There's a lot of confusion about The nature of God's kingdom and his true temple. Many professing Christians fall prey to Satan's deceptions. They become destructive and unfruitful to God's kingdom work and temple rather than constructive and fruitful. And that is the message of the present passage in the first century Jerusalem of which this passage is taken it's just as relevant to us today as it was back then when Jesus is speaking here right before His betrayal, crucifixion, and the very week that we are considering. But understanding the nature of the kingdom and its king is the key to living a fruitful and productive and constructive life. And there's a great warning in this passage that Matthew uses to conclude the last parable that we addressed a number of months ago. So let me at least get a a bit of a running start in putting this back into context. The context of this passage began uh, more immediately back in verse 1, when he rides into Jerusalem on what we'd call the great triumphal entry into Jerusalem to declare that he is the Messiah, the King of Israel the long-awaited one that they have been seeking. The first thing he did when he enters in Jerusalem, as Matthew narrates it, is he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple from all of the abuse and destructive behavior going on there. And one of the architectural characteristics of the temple project in the kingdom of God that we will see merging from here on is the organic nature of it. I believe often poetically mixing metaphors of living things with construction materials so that we understand when he comes to it that we are living stones, to shape a new way of thinking about what God is doing here. So organic, construction materials, and the two metaphors go together. At the beginning of the chain of events here, in the beginning portion, as we read our way through Matthew 21, we're at the end of it. In just a few days, this is what the week we would call Holy Week, as he comes into Jerusalem and and from that time on, in a very few short days, he's going to be crucified. But as he begins this particular narrative at the beginning of this week, he comes to this incident of the fig tree. And Jesus comes to the fig tree, sees that it is unfruitful, and he curses the fig tree. Notice how that corresponds with the fruitfulness given in verse 43 of our passage. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Fruitfulness. Kingdom fruitfulness. The withered unfruitful fig tree symbolized the destruction of the temple and as it then corresponded to all of the Jews' unbelief. And the destruction of that we will begin to see emerging in subsequent chapters. In fact, in Matthew 23, verse 38, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. A few verses later in chapter 24, verse 2, he says, Do you see these things? Assuredly, I say to you, Not one stone shall be left upon another that all shall be thrown down. He explains the destruction of the temple as identified with the rejection of him by the Jews of that day. Jesus came to build a new kind of temple and the old must be done away with to make place for the new. And the Jews would not accept this. And so the dominant message ever since Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that given week, the dominant message that we will see and have seen is the rejection of Jesus. The rejection. He was rejected by the religious leaders that would in a very short time include the entire nation, all of the Jews. When they at first were praising the Hosanna Glory to God in the highest and throwing all of their palm branches down. For the great king to come into Jerusalem, it wasn't but a few days that they were shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! In verse 23 through verse 27 in this chapter, they reject Jesus' authority. He follows that up with a parable in verses 28 through 32, where he spoke of his rejection by the religious leaders. And then he gives them another parable from verse 33 onward that he spoke of his own rejection along with the prophets that even the Son of God himself is the one they were rejecting. Our particular passage this morning is found at the tail end of that last parable. And for just summary purposes, let me remind you about that parable of the vineyard. There was a landowner who was identified as God the Father. The vineyard was considered the nation of Israel. The vine growers who took care of that vineyard and who was left the stewardship of it were the leaders of the nation, both the civil and the religious leaders and the son who finally was given at last was Jesus and The parable of the story is the whole history of the relationship between God and those whom he's entrusted to the care of the nation and in verse 34 through 36 God sending the prophets to them to obtain fruitful responses from that nation It's the same fruitful responses that Jesus was expecting from that nation. It is the same fruitful responses that He expects of us today. For us who have been graced with the knowledge of Christ, what are those fruitful responses? The fruitful responses that God seeks from all of His people, let me just summarize it basically in three. First of all, He seeks from His people a pure worship worship in spirit and in truth, a worship that displays the glories of creation and redemption. That's one of the fruitful responses He expects. A second fruitful response is from his people that he expects is holy living in keeping with that pure worship. And a third fruitful response is he expects his people to be the light to all the nations. In other words, to serve and to minister. To worship, to live holy lives, and to serving. As Jesus concludes the parable of the organic vineyard, He does so in architectural terms. He does so perhaps to show the true nature of the kingdom. And the true temple over against the concrete and the physical and the political misconstrued ideas that the Jews then at that time had. It was exactly of this misconstrued reason that they rejected Jesus and the very nature of his kingdom. They wanted it one way and Jesus showed them it was another way, but they would not submit. So, keeping with the theme of Jesus' rejection of the Jews, Jesus then quotes from this psalm, Psalm 118, and that's our passage, or our text this morning. This rejected stone is the theme of That then summarizes his rejection at the end of this chapter. And it's the message this morning. The rejected stone. To build God's kingdom construction project. The the true and the living temple. Religious leaders are to build from heaven sent materials that God has provided. For you to participate today in the building up of the true nature of God's kingdom, you must be building with heaven-sent materials that God has provided you in Christ Jesus. It is out of the truth and with the truth that the kingdom will be built up. All of the truth of the Old Testament that was revealed in the sacrifices, the ceremonial law, the building of the temple these truths that pointed forward to the Messiah who has now come in Christ. We are to see that He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life. And we are to embrace Him completely in all of His Lordship. Now, the Lord speaks in ways that they then would have understood in His day. Jesus then quotes Psalm 118 verses 22 through 23 and he identifies himself with the stone that the builders rejected. And the builders here are the very religious leaders to whom he is speaking in this passage. Religious leaders would examine some truth and they would see if it would be fit for the building or not fit for the building. Like a A builder might examine the stones and thought maybe this one perhaps should not be included and cast it away. And so the stone they rejected. The stone. It's like going to the the lumber yard and you're trying to find the right pieces of wood. You're trying to find good wood. And today that's hard to do. And so if you are able and you can, you go through and you begin culling through the, the, the pile of lumber. And you take the lumber and you look it down and you, you, you want straight lumber without twists and checks and cracks and without too much crown in it, without too many knots. And, and pretty soon you begin throwing this away and throwing that away. Oh, this one you can use and this one you can use. This is the way... When we build good buildings. And here they were taking this and throwing the very important stone and rejected it. But there's a great surprise, a great reversal in verse 42 that the very stone that they rejected, surprisingly, has become the chief cornerstone of the entire structure that God was building. A cornerstone was the important piece, the most important piece of a building construction of the day before lasers and, and before square uh, and, and, and levels and those sorts of things. And even though they still had many of those plumb lines and squares to measure by, the most important structural element in the entire building was the cornerstone. The cornerstone would have been squared off as true as it could on all sides and corners so that it would be placed at the corner of the building and everything else was measured from it. It became the reference. It became that which everything was squared up to. It became that to which every other stone was placed in reference and relation to. It would be that from which the whole building would be plumbed and squared And true. And this stone was rejected by the religious leaders of the day, and God would take the stone they rejected and He would make it the chief cornerstone, the most important piece of the entire temple building kingdom project. That was the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. There's illustrations all throughout Scripture of how God uses that which is rejected to be important parts of His kingdom project. It take us long before we think about the likes of Joseph or David or the prophets. In this instance, Jesus. Acts 4 that we read and meditated on earlier is another place in which Psalm 118 is quoted. And I believe in Acts 4, even from 1 Peter, it does provide more understanding of the fulfillment of this great prophecy of which Psalm 118 quotes. And Acts 4, I'll give it to you again for reference. It says, Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now is there, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Peter explains the rejection of the stone here as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The leaders took the stone and the rejection of which they gave him was not merely a a passive rejection of his teaching. It was a violent rejection and having him crucified upon the uh, Roman cross. And yet God reversed the entire situation to make this rejected stone the chief cornerstone when He raised Him from the dead three days later. It was the raising of Christ from the dead, the great resurrection of Christ, which makes Him the chief cornerstone for the new temple project. The builders rejected Him and crucified Him. God vindicated Him by raising Him up and placing Him At the chief corner of the new temple. The resurrection of Christ is the most important part of the new temple. It's that which every other stone will be fitted and built upon. The old temple will be no more. A new one will grow and it will only grow throughout all of the earth. It will not be merely in Jerusalem. This temple is a universal temple that will cover the entirety of the earth like the garden was to grow so that the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God would go throughout all of the earth as the waters do cover the sea. And so the usage of Psalm 118 is important. It's 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 one of those very important Passages in the Old Testament of which is then later interpreted in light of the resurrection of Christ in the new to understand what God has done in new creation. When Christ was raised from the dead, the new creation has begun. A new era, a new world, a new heavens and new earth has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when the day that God raised him from the dead, that's what's referenced in Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24, which says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This passage in Psalm 118 is a key passage to understand. Now, in the new creation, along with the new temple, there is a new Sabbath day of worship. You got a new God space with the new temple, you got a new heavens and a new earth that has been created in the resurrection of Christ, yet waiting its consummation when He comes back and the entirety of this earth now ceases to groan and is restored and all of us in Christ are raised from the dead to live here where heaven and earth comes together. There's this new space, but there's also a new time. The new Sabbath day for worship. On the first day of the week, which is this day that God has made, this day of resurrection, this day of new temple building, this day of which the the kingdom is growing now upon the earth. This first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, it is the reference as our Sabbath rest in Christ. When John... He's on exile in Patmos and he saw the vision of the heavenly worship going on there. God revealed to him in the scripture and it says there, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. When then he sees this heavenly worship going on. Christians living in the light of the post-resurrection have a new day. To worship God, the Lord's day. And this is the day, the resurrection day, the day that changed everything on earth. And it's never been the same. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And once God reverses the course of events from rejection to the stone to the making it of the chief cornerstone... Jesus then brings the whole matter to application in verses 43 and 44. There are two aspects to this application, one corporate and one personal. The corporate application in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's speaking to the religious leaders, but he's speaking also to the entirety of the nation of Israel. He's going to give it to a nation that would produce the fruit of the kingdom. The kingdom is the subject of Jesus' message the kingdom of God that he came preaching. That John the Baptist was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Because the king has now come. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's not a place you go. It is the order and the sphere under which you live. It is the rule of God over the the winds and the waves and all all of the nations and kings. It is the rule of God with his law upon us, showing us righteousness and love. And It is the rule of God that has come down here upon earth and is in every molecule, in every cell, in every atom, in every detail, And it is complete. And it is over everything. But the question here is, will you give to God the right for him to rule you? Are you in the kingdom of God? I want to be clear here and very simple. You are not a Christian. You will not go to heaven if you do not let God govern you. It's as simple as that. Jesus is Lord. Man dies because he disobeys God. He's not going to live without that changing. You must be prepared for the Lord to lay His rightful Claim upon you. His rightful position in the lives of His creatures. That He has made. He has created. That He is sovereign over. You must obey Him. Many will say to Him in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in Your name? And do I not do this in that name? And He says, not everyone who says to me that, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. You must obey the gospel. The kingdom of God is a matter of God ruling my life, and it requires my submission. And there's no possibility that will ever take place unless God Himself does something for me. And in me. That's the whole nature of the Scriptures, revealing... Salvation and God's rule in the lives of His people. Entering the kingdom is being delivered once and from all. It is a matter of what John was saying. It is a matter of what Jesus came preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And for Israel who will not do that, which they had not, and they were rejecting the stone, Jesus is going to take that kingdom from them and he's going to give it to a nation who will bring forth its fruit. The fruit of submitting to the Lordship of Christ. The fruit that will come forth in worship and purity and truth. The fruit that will bring holy and sanctified lives to the glory of God. A fruit that will bring forth service and ministry in His name throughout all of the earth. Lives who are truly governed by God. Well, what nation is that? He's taking it from the nation of Israel and giving it to a nation. And he speaks here of the Gentile people as a whole. As Revelation might put it, every kindred, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. Those who must do so from heaven-sent materials that God Himself has provided in His Son, Christ. The Jews were not willing to do this, so now He takes the kingdom from them and He gives it to all of the Gentiles. And the same application is being worked out right here in our very context today in the 21st century. Our whole history has been lived out in this context. Our narrative follows in the large arc of the the narrative of Scripture because there are national consequences for rejecting God's cornerstone of the true religious faith. On a national level, the kingdom taken from those people and given to another wake up church Now he comes down to a very personal level. In verse 44, very individual to you and me this morning. And this is probably the most important matter for your consideration this morning, how it applies to you particularly. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. There are a couple couple of possibilities of how to understand this verse. But it, it seems that those two phrases are here generally or roughly saying the same thing. Ultimately, it has to do with rejecting that stone. And if you do, here are your personal consequences. The first seems to be saying when a person comes into an acquaintance with this stone... If he falls on it, or if he stumbles over it, if you will, he gets tripped up over it rather than building upon it. Or secondly, if he goes on his way, heedless and oblivious, a day will come when that stone falls upon him. In either case, there's total destruction of those people and those lives who get hung up by the stone or who get crushed by it. And that's a terrible thing. Considering that that's for an eternity. Jesus did not come into this world so that He might judge the world at first. He did not come into this world so that that would be the eternal consequence for all man. He came to save that which was lost. He came to save sinners. It's why He gave His life on the cross. It's why He did what He did. And God raised Him from the dead, making Him the chief cornerstone. And the Scripture pleads with men to receive this stone. He pleads with you. Change your mind about what's important. You've got to repent. You've got to decide what, that, that what God values, you're going to value. You have to decide that what God loves, you're going to love. What God delights in, you're going to delight in. And what God hates, you're going to hate. You're going to have to decide what He embraces, you will embrace. And what He does not, you will not. You're going to have to elevate what God elevates. You're going to have to rejoice over what heaven rejoices in. And that's going to require you and me to repent of our worldly ways and embrace by faith God's Savior for you. The stone. And this posture toward God's values finds expression in our view and attitude even on the Lord's day itself. Here, right now. Our current passages, quote, and usage of Psalm 118 marries together the new Sabbath delight in Jesus' resurrection. And what we get excited about and what we delight in on this day and where we put our thoughts and our attention on this day reflects how highly or not we value the Lord and His work on this day. This is the day to rejoice in. This is the day to be glad in. This is the day to delight in in heavenly pleasures and what God values. But this is the day that Satan will exploit for those very reasons. This is the day that he will energize the world to exploit this day. Do not fall prey to those snares to devalue the grace of God in Christ Jesus and the work he's done for you. Learn to love this day, delight in this day, to cherish this day, to value this God time with Him in God's space, the new temple in Christ. But this day, this is the day that the world has their recreation. This is the day NFL games are played. This is the day that golf championships are made. This is the day that NASCAR races are won. This is the day of the world's recreation. This is the day in which losers and winners of the world will be determined. But God is looking for a people to delight in what He delights in, to get more excited about the heavenly things than the earthly events. For the Christian, all things are passed away because the new creation has begun. You are a new creature. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Because you are united in the body of Christ which is resurrected. You are resurrected already in Him. Awaiting for your bodily resurrection still, yes. But all things are new. And the Spirit of God then energizes us with the right affections as He trains us in the Word of God, the truth. We say yes and amen when we see Jesus. We say yes and amen when we hear of His ways. When He says, I want to govern your life, we say yes and amen. And that's one of the ways we know that we truly are of this new creation. Because the Spirit has testified. And giving us a delight in what God delights in. And you have to embrace by faith this stone. And when you do that, God will begin to build your life upon the solid rock. Building the kingdom is something each one of us are called to do. And yet the nature of building that kingdom is something, oftentimes, a manner of, of which Christians do not see. Where they often miss. When we consider God's kingdom construction project, this building of the new temple, right? We are to take heed how that temple is built in relation to the cornerstone that has already been laid. Paul speaks about the manner of building. The New Testament speaks about architecture through many of its pages and how we are to build. In 1 Corinthians 3, he speaks about this new covenant temple building, specifically calling out the temple there. But this new temple, and he's addressing a people who are very dissentious and divisive and schismatic, and he's trying to tell these people how to behave in relation to one another. And this relational character becomes one of the the biggest characteristics of the nature of the kingdom of God. And that's why he's warning them that the way they're building may all be burned up with wood, hay, and stubble. It's only the heaven-sent materials of gold and silver and precious stones that will withstand the judgment fires of God that will come through. And what he's speaking of here is how they build. They are destroying the temple with their schisms and divisions and their pride and and all of the problems that they are going through through the entire epistle. Carnal materials of the flesh and not of the Spirit. But the Scriptures exhorts us to be building the kingdom of God with these precious characteristics of the Spirit of God Himself. The characteristics that the Beatitudes declare. The characteristics that the fruit of the Spirit show us. As he says in the 14th chapter of Romans, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Given in the context in Romans 14, what he's saying is the kingdom of God is not about rule keeping. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. It's not about some moral code to live up to. And while the law of God is very important, it has its place. The focus of our lives of the kingdom is not about law building and law keeping, it's completely missing the point. We must learn the difference between the character and the spirit of righteousness and mere acts of righteousness. One is biblical love. That is the fulfillment of the law to love the Lord thy like God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thy neighbor as yourself. The other is performance. We often get those confused works, and grace, duty-bound rather than motivated in love. The essential issue with the Pharisees is that they saw matters in terms of performance and duty and not in terms of the inner disposition of the heart towards fellow man, and Jesus chastened them time and time again regarding the weightier matters Do not reject this stone. And once you receive Christ, we have to build upon Him with heaven-sent materials of godly character and love to be fruitful. And to be fruitful, He desires genuine, heartfelt, joyful expression of corporate worship, of private worship, of your devotional life with Him personally. He desires a fruitful life of worship. In John chapter 4, he says, I'm seeking, God is seeking to save worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Jesus said in John 15, you do not choose me. I chose you that you might bear fruit and to live a holy and godly life with the character of heaven, with the beatitude character. Of having a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. One who mourns for his sin. One who, who is meek in his character. And is merciful in his life toward others. And he desires a fruitful people that will serve him. With the character and the worship. Bringing others into the fold so that they too may worship and serve Him and live holy lives. The kingdom is growing. The temple is universal. The kingdom is about Christ's rule and governance of your life. And the temple is this beautiful place that He has given upon this earth that we might find God dwelling among His people here, embodied in Jesus Christ. And we're about to taste and see that He is good. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this beautiful, amazing creation project that you had decreed even before it began of how it would turn out even in light of our great fall so that Christ might be lifted up and draw all men to himself, that he might be the seen as the image and glory of God, that, that Christ himself would come and lift us up and to translate us out of darkness into the kingdom of light. Where Christ himself would seat us in those heavenly places. Where Christ would unite us to himself. In his death, his burial, and in his resurrection. We are new creatures in him. We are the temple of God. God. United with Christ where He is the chief cornerstone. And with the truth we build. With the truth we serve. And with the truth we live. With the truth we worship. Granted, O Lord, we pray that You would square us up now with the plumb line of the truth and make our lives to be square and true with that cornerstone upon which we are laid and with whom in each other we are living stones, united together to be this great temple of God in the Spirit. We pray that you would take the applications and unite them with our understanding of our heart and bring forth the fruit that would glorify your holy name. And it's in Christ, our cornerstone, we pray. Amen.